Good morning, ladies. I hope that you had a lively discussion in your groups today. I'm Mary Collell, and I'm giving the lecture this morning. Would you please open your Bibles to Psalm 32, and then put your fingers in Psalm 38 and 51, because we're going to be going through all three of the Psalms. The title Karen gave our questions today is When Repentance is Needed. Yet when we read and study the three Psalms we are assigned in this lesson, the word repentance is not found. I looked at my Strong's Concordance, and it's easy, it's interesting to note the words that were tra translated repentance in the Hebrew. There are only two words used for repent and repentant. Oops, not working. There we go. There we go. <laughs> they are naham, uh, which means to breathe deeply, sigh, to displace sorrow, pity, or to rue, as it, that's its synonym for regret. It's like, I rue the day I ate that whole chocolate cake. And shuv, even though I've got shuv, that's pronounced, the B is pronounced a V, uh, which has a long list of meanings, but the first in line is turn back or away, retreat or reverse. It conveys a physical turning of a person or object. I think many people today, even Christians, believe repentance involves these same two things, display sorrow or regret for sin and then turn away from sin. However, this is not enough. There is no indication of a transformation of the mind. One Bible scholar pointed out that the New Testament Greek word that better conveys the meaning of true repentance, um, and that's in the Gospels, and it uses the word that comes from the root word metanaeo, which means to think differently afterwards, to think differently after. An example is Luke 3, 8. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, and he says, therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Metanoia, acknowledge your sin, turn from it, change your thinking, reject and abhor that sin that you will not repeat it and let it show by your actions of pursuing righteousness. I, miss, I skipped the part that says think differently about your sin. So my point is that even though the word repent is not seen in the three Psalms, they each paint a picture, a clear picture of true repentance. We see conviction or recognition of sin, true godly sorrow over sin, confession of that sin, which means we agree with God that we have sinned against him. And four, a restoration of joy accompanied by a pursuit of righteousness and right living. Psalm 32, written by David, is the first of 13 Maskell Psalms which are instructive in nature. Most scholars believe this Psalm, as well as 38 and 51, were written by David to teach the people the serious consequences of not repenting quickly and the blessing of true repentance and forgiveness. He is admitting publicly what he has done because he has come under the heavy discipline of God and wants the people to not follow on the same path so they will be spared the spiritual and physical suffering God used to convict him of his sin. In verse 1 and 2, we see David says he's blessed because his transgression, sin, and iniquity have been forgiven since his genuine repentance. He came to God with no receipt. Deceit, he gave no excuses or tried to justify his sin. And the three words David uses to describe his disobedience are not three separate types of sin. 
Rather, each word reveals different aspects of sin working together to give us a more complete picture of what disobedience to God really is. The first one, sin, shata, means to miss the mark, err, or fall short of God's standard. And we see that this is used in all three of those Psalms, Psalm 32 and 38 and 51. The next, transgression, is pesha. It means rebel rebellion or revolt, a deliberate, willful crossing of a line or boundary. And we see this in Psalm 32 in verses 1 and 5, and Psalm 51 in verses 1 and 3. And then iniquity, avon, means bent or twisted, perverse, a, a bent towards sin. And it conveys the idea of the deed and its outcome. And it speaks of deep-seated patterns and habits of sin. And in one of your questions, uh, you were given a reference for Exodus 34-7, which talks about how the sin of the fathers, the iniquity of the fathers is visited on the 34th generation of those who hate him. This is speaking of patterns of sin or habits of sin that are passed down from generation to generation, like child abuse or spousal abuse. And this kind of sin can only be broken by breaking that chain, which can only come because they have received Christ as their savior. They don't hate God anymore, but they love him because they've accepted Jesus as their savior. And we see this in Psalm 32, two and five, Psalm 38, four and 18, and Psalm 51, two, five and nine. In verses 3 through 4, David endures physical and spiritual suffering. He knows it's from God's hand and is convicted. He mourns his sin, which leads him to confess in verse 5. David exposes his sin, iniquity, and transgressions, all which has been hidden, adultery and murder. And we can hardly imagine God forgiving this, but he does. No matter how horrid our sin may be, when we genuinely repent, fully confess our sin to the Lord, God will forgive us. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now this forgiveness is based on the relationship we have with God, as was David's. There must be a faith relationship with God. David believed in and put his trust in the God who justifies the godly. The only way we can have that is through relation, that relationship with God today is by placing our faith in Jesus Christ as the one who shed his blood on the cross to pay the price for our sin. All of it. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 tells us, Jesus made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions and having canceled our sin debt, nailing it to the cross. And Ephesians 1, 7 Jesus, I mean, Paul says, in him, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Therefore, it is only when we are in Christ that we have a relationship with God, and through him, we receive forgiveness of sin, past, present, and future. In verses 6 through 7, David shows his changed thinking by encouraging godly hearers to pray and turn to the Lord when they have sinned. Seek forgiveness quickly, he's saying, before God's chastening, chastening rolls over you like a mighty flood, he tells them. 
David is saying, don't make the mistake he did. Hide in the Lord and be surrounded with songs of deliverance, not discipline. In verses 8 through 11, David says, learn from this psalm. Take instruction. Don't be unteachable, rebellious or stubborn. Like an unbroken horse or mule, submit to God's bit and bridle and choose to walk in obedience to his will and trust in him. Then you will be delivered from the sorrows of the wicked and you will be glad in the Lord, as it says, and rejoice and shout for joy. Now we're going to move on to Psalm 38. At the beginning of this psalm, David describes it as a psalm of remembrance. David cries out to God to spare him from his anger. He cries out for God to look down upon him and act to help him in his suffering. As David describes his excruciating suffering in graphic detail, he is not complaining or expressing anger towards God. He is exhibiting his brokenness. God's rod of discipline is accomplishing its purpose. David is ready to confess his sin and be reconciled to God. Um, something, an interesting note I found as I was doing my study is one Bible scholar states that this psalm was used by the congregation of Israel in confession of sin on the Day of Atonement, reminding David and the Jews of the painful consequences of sin. It would be good for us to consider this as well. In verses 5 through 6, we see David's conviction and his sorrowing over his sin. He says, because of my folly, I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. In verses 17 and 18, David confesses his sin. For I am ready to fall and my sorrow is continually before me. For I declare my iniquity. I am full of anguish over my sin. That's in the New King James Version. I was hard pressed to find the joy and pursuit of righteousness part of repentance in this, in this psalm. But I can say, as we look at verse 15, that David has confidence in God's character and that God would answer David's prayer for repentance. God uses, God uses, David uses three names of God in this verse. Lord, all capital letters in your Bible, uh, Jehovah or Yahweh. God's covenant name, the name by which he made all his promises to Israel and to David. Also, Lord, Adonai, Master, David was God's, he's declaring David was his humble servant, God's humble servant, and would submit to his master in repentance. And God, Elohim, the strong, all-powerful one. David's situation is desperate, but he knows God can change it. So I would say there would be some joy in having confidence in the Lord, even when circumstances are bleak and David is waiting for God's help. Now we'll move on to Psalm 51. So if you turn in your Bibles there, please. Adultery and murder are the heinous sins of Israel's king, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart. David stole the wife of one of his most faithful warriors a lawyer, loyal friend who would gladly have died for David, then arranged for his death. For almost a year, David persistently refused to deal with his shameful sin. Eventually, God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David, and he finally repented. Psalm 51 is David's heartfelt confession to God. 
It is best known and loved because it is so personal and shows us the pattern for humble and sincere repentance. In verse 1, David asks for forgiveness and for God to be gracious to him. Then in the next several verses, David teaches us how to confess our sins. His attitude as he approached God should be the attitude of all who are genuinely broken because of their sin. One, David realized he did not deserve God's forgiveness. Two, he cast himself on God's mercy. Three, he made no excuses for what he had done. Four, he acknowledged the severity of his sin. He did not soften it or downplay it. Five, he did not attempt to justify his sin. Six, he did not blame others. And seven, he freely admitted his guilt. Notice David did not ask God to deal with him fairly or justly, because that would mean he deserved death. Adultery's punishment was stoning. Premeditated murder was you gave your own life. You gave up your life. David had no bargaining chip, but he pled for God's mercy according to thy loving kindness. To God's has said his covenant relationship with David and the Israelites. This was... Um, Yes, the covenant love relationship that he had with God. So David appeals to God on that basis and asks God to erase his sin and blot it out. We see David uses the three words we looked at earlier, sin, transgression, and iniquity. He adds in verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And David is referring directly to the sin against Uriah. In verses 2 through 4, David acknowledges his sin, agrees with God that he has done evil in, the, in God's sight and admits his guilt. He expresses his sorrow over his sin in verse 3 and 4. My sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. David is not denying or diminishing the fact that he sinned against others. Uriah, Bathsheba, his own family, his nation. Joab and others, but he is acknowledging that ultimately all sin is against God himself because he is our creator and we are accountable to him. We have a couple of examples uh, from the Old Testament. Joseph, when he's speaking to Potiphar's wife when she wanted him to sleep with her from Genesis 39.9, Joseph says, how then can I do this great evil and sin against God? And the prodigal son in Luke 15.18. He's speaking to his father, and he says, I have sinned against heaven, which means he sinned against God, and in your sight, in his father's sight. God alone is the one who judges sin. So David measures his sin as what is evil in God's sight, a much higher standard than what the world has or holds. In verse 5, David's sin was a result of what he was, a sinner just like us, who have all fallen short of God's glory and perfection. His sinful nature was present from the time his mother conceived him. Even as he grew in her womb, he was a sinner. In sin did my mother conceive me, we read. And this does not mean David's conception was the result of a sinful act by his parents. It just testifies to his, also our, sinful nature. When he was conceived, he inherited the sinful nature of Adam the first human, and we read about that in Romans 5, 12, and 19. 
Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. So this is telling us that you can only be made righteous through the one who died on the cross for your sins, Jesus Christ. Also, as another verse to add to this, um, Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor of, among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Verses 7 through 13, God, David asked God to clean him, to cleanse him and purify him. Only God can do this. And it's interesting that he spoke of hyssop in, um, in that verse. And hyssop was a fragrant plant that was <clears throat> used in the Bible. Um, the first time we read about it, I believe, is in Exodus, where, in chapter 12, where the Israelites were commanded to take the blood of the Passover lamb and put it on the lintel and the doorposts of their homes. And then that would keep them safe. That would save them from the angel of death that passed over. They, the angel of death would not harm anyone in their homes. And another use of the hyssop was in purification rites um, in the Old Testament. It was used in Leviticus for a cleansing of lepers in their homes. It was used to um, cleanse the temple. Um, in Numbers, it was the ashes of a red heifer, which was a blood sacrifice and water were mixed. And you took a hyssop plant and dipped it in the water and the ashes, and you would sprinkle it on unclean things to purify them. But I think the most compelling um, verse is, comes from Hebrews 9, 19 through 22. And it says, For when every commandment that had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. In verse 21, And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So this seems to be an allusion to the blood that has been shed for for forgiveness, as in the blood of Jesus Christ. So I thought that was very interesting to look that up and research um, about hyssop. Then David prays for the restoration of his joy, as we continue in the verses of 7 through 13. And he asks for a renewed, a clean heart and a steadfast spirit. His thinking has to be radically transformed. David also asks for God not to reject him not to remove the presence of his spirit from David. This quote from Bible commentator Warren Wearsby explains David's request simply and clearly. The Lord gave the Holy Spirit to David when Samuel anointed him. We see that in 1 Samuel 16, 13. And David didn't want to lose the blessing and the help of the spirit, as had happened to Saul when he sinned in 1 Samuel 16. Today, the Holy Spirit abides with believers forever. We read about that in John 14. But God's children can lose the Holy Spirit's effective ministry by grieving the Spirit, 
Ephesians 4, lying to him in Acts 5, and quenching him by deliberate disobedience, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. In verse 13 of Psalm 51, David promises to teach others God's ways and turn them away from sin and back to God. Again, he has a renewed mind and he is pursuing righteousness, doing what is right in God's sight. Verses 14 through 17, we see other evidence of David's transformation. He will praise God for his forgiveness. He will offer God the acceptable worship of a broken and contrite heart. In verses 18 through 19, we see David's intercession for others. He asked that his sin would not affect the nation, but it, that it would keep God, would not keep God from blessing them. And we have some lessons from our Psalms today. One, even godly people can fall into terrible sin. From 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Any of us can fall into sin, even terrible sin. We always have to be very careful and very aware. Two, sin is serious, causing inescapable consequences. Just one lapse into sin can change our lives and the lives of others for as long as we or they live. In 2 Samuel, we see that David had a lot of really troublesome family problems. And this was because his sin greatly diminished his moral authority within his family. Three, we never sin so grievously that we cannot come to God for forgiveness. Four, be quick to repent, Psalm 32. Five, David confessed to the whole nation. Confession to others is good to do. James 5, 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. By doing this, it helps us hold, helps hold us accountable so we don't fall back into the particular sin. And we have others to encourage and pray for us to grow spiritually and to be obedient to the Lord. However, if a public confession would be harmful to someone else, we should refrain from doing this. And we should also to confess to the few, as few people as possible. Just whoever really needs to be um, asked, you have to ask forgiveness from them or whatever. The fewer people that know the better or else there's tend to be, there will tend to be gossip. And six, when we confess our sins to God sincerely, he will forgive, cleanse, and restore us, regardless of how bad the sin is. So I will close with prayer, and then if you have any questions, I will be live to answer any questions you may have about the lecture today. Okay, so let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this opportunity to talk to the ladies today. And I pray that from what we've learned in our lesson today, that you would help us to heed the warnings, to be quick to repent, and that, um, and that you would discipline us if we don't readily do so. Help us to remember that. Help us also to learn from the pattern of true repentance we see in this psalm, these psalms, these three, and take to heart the lessons from them about true repentance. And I thank you so much for Chris and Barbie Johnson, who um, helped me to record the lecture today. And these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.